Hi, everyone. Back at you with another episode of ESEC Lending Insights, where we keep it unscripted, real, and interesting. Unscripted, Peter? I would say that's definitely true, but interesting. Why don't we let our listeners decide on that one? What we are here to do, folks, is share with you our thoughts and perspectives on the securities lending industry, whether that be about demand trends or just what's going on in the industry. And now over to our episode. Let's go. You know, that shirt is a newly purchased shirt, and now I probably won't wear it again, Brooke. It's, well, no, uh, just to be clear, Jim, I liked this shirt. I just was highlighting well, that it looked like a new piece in the Jim Maroney Resort it, Collection it, it, segment of I your wardrobe. I have a section in my closet <laughs> of resort wear, both long sleeve and short sleeve, and it's only about three of each, but I do actually have a section. I hate that you just said that because it's so spot on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very intuitive, Jim. I can also intuit today oh. in your golf polo that I'm thinking as a Friday that there's probably a tea time late afternoon in your future. My brother and mother just came to visit last night. So I'm hoping to play a little golf with my brother. Yes. I'll have you know that while you were making fun of the resort wear, I By the way, a, everyone, hold on, because this is definitely going into the pod, just to be clear. Nope, like we, we just nope. started a moment ago. So yesterday, and to our guests, who I haven't even introduced yet, Jim was wearing a shirt with giant lemons all over it, which he, of course, said, well, here at Isaac Lending, we make lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. And that's our why head you- trader. <laughs> all right, go on. Tell me more about I, your resort I, collection. You know that another prominent, very senior person at ESEC sent me a compliment while you were making fun of me about my shirt, had looked it up, Googled lemon shirt, and my shirt came up, it was the very first one up and bought it for her husband. I'll have you know, that's what happened yesterday. So all right, well, it it probably just missed the Prime Day deal on Amazon. I'm sure it was deeply discounted this week. 39 bucks. (laughs) We're all about value here at ESEC. You know, everybody's selling the fall wear now. So summer stuff is discounted. Okay. Go time. All right. Okay. So listeners, we have, so as you can tell, it's just Gemini in our banter. Peter Basler has unceremoniously rejected joining today. So it's his decision, not ours, just to be clear and for the record. But we have an external guest with us and one that is a regular, I dare say, on the ESEC Lending Insights podcast, Mr. Matt Chesham from S&P Global. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. Good to be here. And Matt is sporting his leisure wear, his sweatshirt hoodie from his leisure collection. It's Friday afternoon. What can I say? (laughs) No. I've been busy powering global markets all day. You've got to do that in some sportswear. All right, good. So Matt, we are just rounding the corner here on mid-July. We just finished up Q2 a few weeks back. And I know that you guys track data in the securities finance market quite closely and obviously have a lot to produce in terms of commentary on what's happening in the market. I think you also, if I'm not mistaken, I could probably preview that you will be doing a webinar in the near term, doing a Q2 review and highlights on what you all have seen for your data set for securities finance. So we were hoping to get a little bit of jump on that and maybe see if you would also share with us some of the highlights from second quarter and we can approach it however you'd like. We can approach it macro, we can jump into asset class specific commentary and would love to then also bounce it off of Jim and just get his trader's viewpoint on all of it as we go. So over to you, Matt. 
So I think we should probably start by just reminding ourselves about what's happened over the last first half of the year, to be honest. I mean, Q2 was pretty incredible in itself. But if we go back all the way to the beginning of the first half of this year, financial markets have been pretty sanguine for a long period of time. And over the last six months, we've seen so much activity that's really pushed the securities finance markets harder than they've been pushed for a long period of time, to be honest, given the market volatility, given the changes in interest rates, inflation, you know, the situation with the US regional banks. We had the US debt ceiling coming up in the second quarter as well. And then we finished quarter two, if you like. So the first half of the year, on a market rally that nobody predicted, nobody foresaw, that's had an impact upon the securities finance markets as well. From a revenue point of view, I mean, securities finance markets, even in Q2, have done incredibly well. So I think it's probably the best Q2 since our data collection started. So Q2 of 2008, which was the mammoth year when we made record revenues, is still the highest Q2 revenue generating quarter. But Q2 2023 was the second highest. So if you look at the numbers in particular, $3.6 billion worth of revenues were generated over the second quarter of 2023. That's broken down by just under 2.8 billion in equities. And you've got $484 million in government bonds and just under $300 million worth of revenues from corporate bonds as well. So in terms of percentage change year on year, the 3.6 billion, that represents a 7% increase. If we take into account all equities, there was an increase of 5% year on year. And fixed income continues to push harder in terms of revenue numbers. Government bond revenues have increased 9% to $484 million. Corporate bond revenues were up 28%. So in all, Q2 was another incredible quarter for all securities lenders. Now, in the same thing your side, Jim, on whether all of this revenue is being equally distributed across the board. Because, I mean, if you look at the equity revenues, quite a lot of it is driven by U.S. specials. The U.S. specials were the highest revenue generating quarter ever for example. And a lot of that came from US equities. AMC generated $450 million in revenues. There has been some activity there. There's been some good value there. And I would imagine whoever was lending those stocks, as long as they manage their recall risk, then they've been making some pretty risk-adjusted returns. Matt, I think it's interesting that you draw the parallel of this quarter to 2008 and 2008 being the high watermark and then talking about driven by specials and AMC. We were talking about it this morning in our team meeting that this AMC deal, it's long, ape, short AMC, feels a lot like the Citigroup deal from back in the 2008 days when that revenue number, a large portion of it was driven by the tier one recap that Citi did back in 2008. And it's almost eerily similar to folks who weren't in the market can't appreciate how close these two are with the deal getting delayed and delayed and delayed. City was the same thing for different reasons, but it is for our clients who own AMC, which is not across the board. It's not a large index name, but for those who do own it, they're having a great quarter, just like you just described, but it is the dispersion of value is great. Even in the GC space, those who lend versus cash and do something with the cash are making way more than non-cash only clients today. We always emphasize the need for flexibility around collateral, and this market accentuates that, I think. If you're U.S.-based, you'll take dollars many times, and what you do with those dollars dictates whether you have a lot out on loan or a little bit out on loan. 
Yeah, so I mean, AMC has really made the difference in terms of the numbers being record-breaking in terms of US specials, because over the first half of the year, just over $2 billion worth of specials revenue was generated. And that compares to H1 2022, where $1.425 billion worth of revenue were generated from specials. So if we conclude that $455 million came from AMC alone, that pretty much is the difference between the two figures. So you can see how important it's been to push those revenues higher over the first six months of the year. So am I understanding those numbers correctly? AMC is a quarter of the specials revenue in Q2? Well, not Q2, sorry, H1, during H1. Yeah, wow. And also said a different way, if you remove AMC out of it, like you just did in those data figures, then it's year over year, broadly consistent, ex-AMC. Is that also what you just said? Yes. Okay. All right. So is it really more that 2008 and... 2023 are years of the big special trade. Is that really more the story? I mean, they could be. Yeah, that's really quite possible. I mean, there is a distinct difference. I mean, if you look at the first half of 2008, $8.4 billion worth of securities finance revenues were generated in comparison to just over $7 billion during the first half of 2023. So we are a little way off the 2008 number, but, you know, this is a very strong second place in terms of the highest revenue generating first half of year ever since we started collecting data at S&P, which was back in 2008. And Brooke, I would, it's glass half empty if you think about it as take AMC out and it's flat year over year, because there's almost always some sort of arb trade that exists in the market globally. You're, you always have one or two going on. And I think AMC, while outsized, something would have happened. Something's going to happen in the second half. Something's yeah, going to happen. And I'm normally not a glass half empty person, just to be clear, Jim. So I don't like you calling me out on that. But I guess I was more just saying, you're right. It's the outsized special that occurred. And not yeah. that you're never going to have those deal names or those opportunities, but they are larger than typical. And it's yep. noted. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and AMC in terms of specials activity is a bit of a beast. I mean, you look over Q2, AMC generated $229.68 million. And then the second highest revenue generating equity was Upstart Holdings, which generated just over 50 million. And then after you've got Lucid Group, you know, the all-time highest revenue generating stock of 2022, which I believe off the top of my head generated about $220 million for the whole year during 2022. So you can see how big AMC has been so far this year. The good times are all. So is there anything else of note in the U.S. equity space? Otherwise, I wanted to ask a question about corporate bonds and just have you give us a little bit more clarity there in terms of the Q2 numbers. No. So in U.S. equities, it's just really the specials market. That's what it comes down to. All of the top 10 revenue generating stocks from Q2 They were all across the board U.S. equities. The only thing that we're noticing about the equities is that fees in the APAC region started to trend upwards towards the end of Q2, where for every other region, they did start trending down. Balances are down pretty much across the board. The recent market rallies has led to a bit of a fall in balances, but Q2, you usually see a fall in balances anyway because of the seasonal activity that takes place towards the beginning of the quarter in Asia and then towards like the middle of the quarter over in Europe. So you do see them fall off. But if you compare 2023 balances and how they decline to 2022 balances, you can see that there's quite a significant drop off in comparison to last year. 
I wonder if that has a lot less to do with the actual market and much more to do with securities finance behavior, and especially given the increase of capital costs on the banks and maybe a focus on balance reduction to reduce indemnity exposure, you know, capital reg costs for indemnities and such. It could be, but is that much change between last year and this year? In terms well, of that's that. kind I mean, of what I guess I'm. More than me, Jim. So I guess yeah. that's my question: is that I'm wondering if that's actually because it does feel like the market conversation on it has changed significantly in the last year, and I'm wondering if we're now seeing that play out in real behavior in the data or not. I mean, maybe I'm sort of taking a piece of information and speculating too much on it, which is dangerous. But I'm asking the question more than making the statement. Jim, do you have an opinion? Not really. It's a great question, but we won't know for another year or so. Definitely the rhetoric and the focus on adhering to regulations and making change to your books so that you are best positioned for those regulations has heated up in the last quarter, or at least in 2023. Discussions we've had are significantly greater. The workarounds, the trades that actually solution for those regulations are actually now starting to happen. But I think the clock's ticking on regulatory change that's coming. And so maybe it's baked in, but I think a lot, I was actually thinking about markets and relative to securities lending and the US market, it's ups and downs. And if you think about the specials, as Matt was going through them, I'm looking them up. Many times the specials aren't correlated to the market. So the specials that we're generating revenue off of have declining stock prices while in 2023, the NASDAQ, for instance, is up 20 or 32%, I think, something like that. So I think Matt's data is a good measure of what's happening in securities lending, where people are shorting and where they're willing to pay for shorts and where that securities lending revenue is generated. It's not as correlated as you might at a high level, macro level kind of expect it to be. I guess my point was more just that there's been market information in the last six months plus that some big lenders are participating less in GC activity or that they've increased the cost of the GC trade or, you know, they've reduced out of the GC trade, whatever their tactic was to get them there, ultimately that they're doing less in the GC space for their client programs because of capital costs. And I guess I'm just wondering if that's widespread enough now that it's actually starting to play out in some of the metrics. Yeah, I guess I I missed that point at first. So you're saying maybe the price differential. So if the short side of the trade doesn't care about regulatory, it's all the brokers in between, whether it's us or, you know, it's in that value chain, you have hedge funds and beneficial owners on both sides and then a couple of agents in between who care about the regulatory balance sheet impact. So- I think I look at that data that Matt gives us and the only part that would move, it is a disparity in who partakes. That big number is huge. And we probably have plenty of clients who don't have a high watermark revenue this quarter. And that makes sense to me because it depends on what your program is and what you're trying to get out of securities lending. But what you're describing could move price, I think, Brooke, because it changes the supply side of the equation. So if there's less people participating in GC for whatever reason, whether they choose or the street chooses not to borrow their stock or their agent lender chooses not to lend it at a certain rate because it doesn't clear return on capital hurdles or RWA hurdles, whatever the case may be, that will impact price. But it hasn't yet, I don't think. I think there's enough supply where it's just shifted. But at some point, if supply changes greatly enough, it will change pricing or it could change route to market, right? It could mean more exclusives versus discretionary lending. 
I think we probably need to wait another 12 months and get another 12 months worth of data to be able to really know whether there is really changing the price. Because all we see at the moment is that revenues and average fees basically increase from high single to low digit figures every single month or every quarter when you look on a year on year basis. And given the change in general financial markets due to interest rates and the AI kind of evolution and the US debt ceiling and all of the other things that have come into play this year, it's difficult to know whether that's down to regulatory change or whether it's just down to heightened demand because there's more risk involved in some of these transactions. I think this time next year, if we're still seeing month on month, year on year increases in fees, then I think that then would be able to try and make the conclusion or bring it towards the fact that it's just becoming more expensive to borrow. And that's being reflected in the average fees that we're seeing in the data. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So your points are, you can't just pay attention to trends in the balances alone, because if there is an actual trend in the balances, then it's going to ultimately impact that revenue number as well and fees. So it's seeing what happens to both of them over the course of time makes sense. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we were talking about the fixed income markets and they continue to blow the doors off, as it were, like uh, corporate bonds in particular, they're still on a bit of a tear. They're still doing particularly well in terms of revenues. You know, if you look at some of the graphs that we have going on here, you can see that they reached their minimum amount during about Q4 2020 in terms of revenue generation. And it's just been a massive increase ever since because interest rates started hiking, what, February, March 2022. So there's been a slow, steady increase in revenues up until then. And then from the beginning of last year, you can see that there's been a massive increase. And that's down to liquidity concerns. And that's down to directional opportunities as well, where the interest rates affect the yields of the bonds. But what we have seen, what is interesting during Q2 is that Q1, there was $298 million worth of revenue generated. Q2, 296. So it has declined slightly. I mean, $2 million over that, that's, you know, fairly small. But it does beg the question as to whether we've actually reached the peak for corporate bonds or whether we're just taking a slight pause like the Fed. And whilst market participants look to digest more market data or try and decide what's going to happen with interest rates going forward, balances were pretty flat quarter on quarter and year on year as well. And it's the first time or it's the first quarter since we've seen this steady increase in revenues where they've started to plateau somewhat. So that could change because I don't think we've had enough data through to be able to really truly make a proper informed conclusion about it. But we have started to see them plateau. The other thing that I would say is that during June, corporate bonds had their lowest average monthly fee since November 2022 as well. And I mean, it's still quite high. It's still 44 basis points, which shouldn't be sniffed at because it's a lot higher than it used to be. But again, we're starting to trend sideways or slightly downwards rather than the massive march upwards that we've seen for the last 12 to 18 months. And Jim, do you also think we've reached a peak in that space? It's interesting data. I think probably not. I'd love to take a deep dive into the corporate bond data and try and make some sort of conclusion from it in terms of why it looks like it's plateauing, or I guess it's probably easier just to wait till next quarter and see what the numbers look like, Matt. But no, our demand has broadened out actually in corporate bond space. So similar data, our on loan is flat for the quarter in that space. Our supply hasn't really changed and revenue is flattish as well. 
for the quarter. So we're more broadly distributed. It used to be a handful of primes who focused on credit and service the credit hedge funds. And now it seems to be a wider swath. Most of the major prime brokers now are servicing credit folks. And I think it's a little bit more profitable to have some of the wallet allocated to the credit space, whereas typically it had been a GC product and now it's a little bit more active. I don't know if you look at this map, but I don't know if you correlate bond prices. It's an over-the-counter market, so you don't have any ticker tape to look at, no major indices other than a handful of bar cap indices that you can look at. But I would look at prices. Maybe I'll do the work for you, but maybe look at the top 25 or top 50 corporate bond revenue generators for the quarter for the year, and then take a look at their prices and see what's happened and see if it's a winning or losing trade. And does that pricing for those specials impact the total average fee or the total revenue generated for the quarter for the year? So it's applying basically what we look at and what you can generally tell in the equity space, applying it to the bond space, which just takes a little bit more digging. Does that make any sense, Matt? Yeah, no, completely. I mean, one of the interesting things that we did see over the course of those is it's normally non-investment grade corporate bonds that earn the majority of revenues, but that flipped during last quarter and it was actually investment grade corporate bonds that generated the majority of the revenue. So it was US dollar corporate bonds, which it always is just because of a function of the size of the market. Yeah. Like I say, normally it's the non-investment grade, kind of the high yield bits and pieces that generally generate the higher revenues. But last quarter, it was all investment grade. But saying that, if you look at the top 10 highest revenue generating corporate bonds, they were all either private placements or the vast majority of them, I would say, what's that, like uh, six out of the 10 are non-investment grade bonds. Yeah, interesting. I wonder, are they triple Bs or are people shorting high grade, high quality companies and finding bonds either a cheaper or a better way to play the space instead of shorting IBM, you short an IBM bond? Or is it kind of fallen angels, like companies that were triple B and people are expecting them to go to triple C type of thing? So well, I mean, there's so many dynamics at play in the bond market at the moment. You look at interest rates, nobody really knows what's happening. They reckon the Fed's going to raise interest rates again in July, but it's not a given, given that inflation is lowering. You've got yields that have gone up on corporate bonds massively and therefore, you know, investors feel like they're actually getting paid for the risk that they're taking. So why would you sit in a high yield bond at 8% when you could have an investment grade bond at 6%? Do you really care for the additional risk? So does that mean that there's more requirements for liquidity that are coming through to the securities finance market for these sorts of assets just from market makers alone? I mean, it's difficult to know because we don't know the actual reasons why people borrow the securities. But I think like it's a very fascinating dynamic at the moment, given all of the changes that are taking place and all of the demand drivers that are kind of pulling these things in different directions. Yeah, I would agree. It's really interesting. And when interest rates have been at zero for the best part of 10 years, seeing a little bit of activity here, you know, it's making people earn their money all of a sudden. (laughs) Yeah. As we sit here now, heading into the beginning of the second half of the year, what sort of views, predictions, anyone that listens regularly knows that Jim loves a good prediction. Matt, I think you've been willing to play in that game as well. What sort of outlook do we have? Asset classes that maybe are up that will continue to rise, asset classes that might fall a bit, any broad views, macro views? I think that the specials market is still going to be quite strong. I think if anything, it all relies on Q2 earnings that come out this week or the week after. I think that's really going to be able to show us some of the winning sectors or some of the losing sectors from these increases in interest rates that are starting to feed through. I mean, most economists say that it takes about 12 months for interest rate 
increases to start feeding through to the real economy. And like we said, most central banks started raising in March last year. So these interest rates should just start to be effective in the markets. And that means that's kind of what we're seeing in the US with the downturn in inflation as well. So I think Q2 earnings are going to be key to know what's strong, what's really benefiting from the increases in interest rates, and what sectors are really being hammered by higher rates and how that's affecting them from a corporate perspective. So I think that once that feeds through in the next couple of weeks, I think we should have a little bit more clarity in terms of sectors or potential asset classes. But look, I think Asian equities in particular, I think they're doing particularly well. Average fees are starting to trend higher. Balances are trending higher. We're seeing more activity in Taiwan. We're seeing more activity in South Korea. So I'm I'm thinking that's probably going to feed through to the second half of the year. First half of the year, Japan did fantastically well as well, even though I think the Nikkei hit a 33-year high during the second quarter. You tend to find that if you've got rising stock market indices in certain regions, then that's not a good thing for securities lending, usually, because it means that positions get closed out or short positions get closed out as markets push higher. I think, you know, anything fixed income is still going to do well because I'm not really too convinced that inflation is completely under control yet. So I think we're still going to see a lot of activity in government bonds. I think we're still going to see a lot of activity in corporate bonds. And again, it will all come down to US equities because they've been pushing the revenues in the equity space for the last 12 to 18 months. I share that optimism. I think I hear you being pretty optimistic about the second half. I bet when we sit here in December or January and we recap 2023, the second half is going to prove to be better than the first half. That's barring any sort of market meltdown or a downtick of 5 or 10%, which would obviously impact revenue for securities lending. But by all accounts, it sounds like short positions are getting put on at this point. So yes, agree with your point, Matt, about higher markets squeezing out some of the shorts, but you also get new shorts coming in. The higher the market goes, the better the short, if you just think about it that way. And so we're hearing from some of the large primes as they do Q2 recaps through pieces they push out or through quarterly calls that they're seeing more and more activity. So I think there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. Historically, long, short, the measures I look at, you're two to one in terms of long versus short. And, you know, if you think about gross exposure being three, it's two and one in terms of long and short. I think we're going to see in the second half a little bit more balance to that one and a half, one and a half. But, you know, your book will be 50-50 from a long, short perspective. But if that money gets deployed on the long side, it's also going to get deployed on the short side. Couple that with pent-up corporate event activity, whether it's new issuance, which we've had some new issuance in the U.S. recently, and I think it's going to continue. If the window opens for IPOs in any form, whether it's traditional IPO or something unique like a spinoff, it'll happen. I think there'll be refinancing in the corporate bond space. You'll see all sorts of corporate events on on various cap structures. And so when that happens, there'll be opportunity to make some money. There'll be long short plays, there'll be arbitrage plays, and there'll be election plays. So I think M&A slash events will drive revenue in the second half. There's a handful teed up in the US, a couple in Europe, and a whole lot of smaller little deals in Asia that I think are poised to drive revenue for us in the second half. So pretty optimistic. So I think you're spot on, Jim. And also, I would just say, at the moment, if we look at it from a very basic level, we've got higher valuations, higher fees, lower balances. For lenders, I mean, that's the magic recipe, surely. They're lending yeah. less stock at higher fees. Right. And, you know, the valuation of the stock is higher as well. So they're generating more revenue. Risk-adjusted basis, a much better trade, right? More revenue and less risk, get less on loan. Yeah. But I think the other thing that we can take away from the first half of 2023 in particular is that we don't really have a clue what's happening. Like, and nobody really knows what's around the corner. There's a lot of unknowns. 
<laughs> yeah. Yes, I agree with that, Matt. You both were at Isla. I was also at Isla. It was a great conference, very well attended. This is our first podcast, I think, since Isla. So that's why I'm asking it. But give me one to two takeaways from that conference, maybe as we wrap up here, just in terms of either things you learned, things that you think were notable trends or updates market-wide, something other than the data. Matt, why don't you go first? Well, I think it was good. There were lots of new faces there, to be honest. I think it was the first year that Isla had run their Isla Connects as well. You know, they had some discounted tickets for more junior members of staff. So that encouraged companies to bring different people along. I thought that was a great initiative. So that was good to see. From a content perspective, I thought it was very interesting. The keynote speech from the chair of ESMA. It was interesting to see what they were going to be looking at going forward. I think it was interesting to see that they were looking at the SFTR data, that they were trying to analyze it and they were trying to work with it in their decision-making process. I think that's reassuring for the market. But to be honest, the one thing that I took away from Isla was just how lively and vibrant and, you know, in good health the whole market seemed to be. To be honest, there were lots of people there. There was a lot of stuff going on. There were lots of meetings taking place. It seemed like everybody was in a good spot and it seemed like people were in a position that perhaps they haven't been in for the last few years because the market's been pretty flat to start investing and start doing different things and start building on what they already have. Yeah, I noticed the same sentiment, the positive tone that it had. I'm glad you said that you felt shops were better funded and sending more junior people. I thought it was just that I was getting old and didn't recognize a lot of faces. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's Both better. Both can to be true. Both can be true. <laughs> My conversations, we met with 30-odd brokers over the week, and many of the conversations were exactly what we have at all the conferences where we talk about CCPs, you talk about RegArb and ways you can improve balance sheet with brokers, ways you can grow business, what you're not doing, what others are doing, what you should be doing, that sort of thing. But now it had timelines attached to it. So CCP solutions, it seemed like more was on the table, definitive roads forward for each broker while not the same and unique to each broker, those roads were, they exist as opposed to just saying we need a solution. Similar with trade structures, whether it's pledge or title transfer, pledge back, like all those conversations came up with every meeting, but now people had roads ahead. And I agree, Matt, I think part of the excitement was there's funding, whether it's funding to build, funding to grow, there was a lot of optimism and it was really encouraging, I think. So maybe fuel for Matt and my optimism about the second half came from that conference. Definitely. Well, one of my big takeaways, so I agree with all those takeaways you all had, but just to add a last point is that I also think that the, not just that probably the diversity of attendance in terms of some of the highlights, Matt, that you spoke about in terms of representation from existing organizations that have long attended ISLA, but also the type of organizations attending. So the asset owner, beneficial owner side of the community in our market, I would say attended ISLA on the edges or in the periphery in the past years. And it really, this year, I think felt different that many more were coming out to attend the conference and also some, you know, pretty large, sophisticated asset owners globally to do so. And I think that that will continue to increase. So I've had conversations with many that did not attend this year that have noted already that they are going to seek approval budget allocation to schedule in ISLA the year following. So I do think that, you know, reflecting on that, that it means that ISLA has become center where the entire market is present 
And I think that when you have the entire market present, that people can learn better from one another. When you engage that asset owner side into the conversations, I think the dealer community can better understand some of the factors driving their decision-making on the supply side, which is really important. And I think also equally that the asset owner side can learn from the borrowing side of the community as well, in terms of what their binding constraints are and sort of how they can adapt guidelines, programs, and otherwise. And then just the peer interaction that I think that that group has at the conference, both in their closed door opportunities and just other networking is really strong and significant. I was very pleased and excited that that was a trend that at least I observed this year, and I think will continue and will grow further in years to come. Yeah, I think that's a massive positive, seeing the beneficial owner community out and about and having a clear voice you know, that was something that I was always trying to push and trying to build. So it's good to see that it's finally come to fruition. You know, there's a lot of thanks to GPFA for that as well. So positive all round. Definitely. Good. All right. Well, I think that can be a wrap. Thank you, Matt, for joining us. We appreciate it. I noticed that you didn't have any chickens in your background today. So that was, they've that gone was a back and they're never coming. They're never coming that back. That was a short lived babysitting gig you had. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good. Well, enjoy the rest of the summer. We'll look forward to connecting again as more data comes out following Q3. And then once we get into the end of the year, we're going to do as I always threaten, which is roll this tape backs and see what actually happened by the end of the year and how your predictions played out in the first half of next. So thank you again. And we'll talk to you soon, listeners. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we left you with something interesting and productive to utilize in your daily securities lending activities. And friends, don't forget to subscribe to ESEC Lending Insights wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer. This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal tax or investment advice. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based upon such information. Thank you for listening.